You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. So just imagine with me, just, just for a moment, that you're an Israelite and you're standing at the base of Mount Sinai and you're looking up like really the face of this sheer cliff that stretches 7,500 feet into the air like a cathedral, right? Now, if you've had that experience, I had an experience similar, not at Mount Sinai, but a couple years ago, um, went to Moab right before COVID hit. And one of the rides that we went on, and if you know kind of the geography of Moab, it's interesting, like very different than ours, right? Like we have these rolling foothills that kind of build into the Cascades, but it's similar out in the desert where you'll just get sheer cliff faces. So one of these rides that we went on, like just rode around the base of this cliff face and we'd stop often. And when you look up something that straight up, like maybe Smith Rock, if you've been there and like just stood and looked up, man, it's disorienting. You almost get like reverse vertigo, right? And so think about that. You're just standing at the base of this mountain and you're witnessing something that is so unprecedented and unbelievable. Mind you, you just saw some pretty crazy things back in Egypt, but those fail in comparison to what you're experiencing now. The sights and the sounds, they're just simply like nothing you've ever experienced. It's like you're at like a Def Leppard concert in 1988 because there's thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and laser lights and crowd surfing and of course a one-armed drummer. Man, the scene before them is both chaotic and terrifying. And all you know is this, everything ahead of you, right? Everything promised to you, everything in your future is only filled with uncertainty and the unknown. Because as you stand there, you look down at your hands and they're calloused and withered from years of brutal and oppressive forced labor, the clay and the straw used to make bricks, and you have made thousands and thousands of bricks. It's still embedded underneath your fingertips. The smell of sweat and straw and clay and just trauma, is, it just saturates your clothing. You didn't have time to change your clothes. You just had to get up and leave. So the trauma of years of subjugation but despite all of that, in that moment, with all of these beautiful promises before you, you turn your gaze back to Egypt. Despite the horror you faced as a people for generations, the call of Egypt is powerful. It promises safety instead of peril, provision instead of scarcity, refuge instead of wandering, the familiar for what is unfamiliar. Yet despite knowing that Egypt always overpromises and underdelivers, you just want to go back to everything you know, even if it's sheer misery. Because the call of Egypt is tempting and the future God promises seems so difficult for you to even envision. What do you mean there's a land filled with promise before us? So you just start thinking about, about turning around, about returning to what you know despite its atrocities somehow feels safer than the uncertainty of this future. Like, do you see why it's so important 
Like if you could put yourself in that place, do you see why it's so important that we begin to recognize and then interact with these commandments, not as a list of rules, like nobody needs more rules, but rather an invitation to life and a very effective method at ripping out the clutches of Egypt from our hearts. After generations of suffering and servitude, Yahweh liberates Israel only to make this take them on this like long trek through one of the most hostile and scarce environments possible. And he stops this whole caravan of people and livestock at the foot of this mountain. It's the same mountain where Moses, their leader, first met Yahweh. And he's preparing them. He's preparing them to enter the land of promise, this place that would be their own, a place of provision and protection, a place where they could grow as a people. They could thrive and flourish as a nation with God as their leader, his kingdom as their culture, and his mission as their mandate. To be a distinct people in the world and bear his image and his name to the nations. You see, these Ten Commandments really should be thought of as ten invitations. They're reversing the culture of Egypt that dwells in our hearts and ripping it out of us. And it's inviting the people that he has set free to truly live now as free people, free to worship Yahweh and worship him in this unique and distinct way, free to carry his name and have their action and activities reflect his goodness to the nations, free to have any vestiges of this false identity that tells you you're only worth what you produce, where you're just a number on a ledger, a commodity to be sold or traded, and your only value is how effective you are at making bricks. You're free to find rest in him, to find Sabbath rest and have your identity reoriented around the Imago Dei in you. And so with these 10 words, Yahweh is not only establishing the morals and the ethics of his kingdom, he's creating now a culture for his people to cultivate and to live out in his kingdom. He's telling them, here's this unique way for you to order your lives and your hearts and your minds, your relationships, everything that you do in such a way that will lead to your flourishing and the experiencing of this deep blessing that I'm bestowing on you. And through that, you will be able to effectively carry out this mission that I have you for, to be a blessing to those around you, to be a generous and hospitable to your neighbors, to, to love your fellow image bearers in such a way that they also hear and receive this as an invitation and join in the song of the redeemed. See, there's these promises from Yahweh to his people, and he's giving them this hope-filled vision of the future that he's creating for them, a kingdom filled with shalom. When Christ returns and establishes his kingdom of no more, no more adultery, no more murder, no more coveting or stealing or lying or cheating or idols or injustice. See how that like turns the burden of the commandments, they are no longer like this albatross hanging around our necks. They are invitations and promises to be lived out for God's glory, our growth, and others' good. So this morning, we're turning a corner of sorts here. We're heading into what command or commentators most commonly refer to as the second table of the commandments. 
So the last six are going to begin to like shift the emphasis to our relationship with our fellow image bearers. And listen, I get it. I'm not suggesting that any of the things that we're going to walk through are easy to live. Well, I do hope it's like easy for you to not murder, okay? If it's not hard for you to murder, we have a very different conversation happening. But, but these are hard to live out. But because why? Because, because the cry of Egypt is powerful and it's tempting and it, it rages war against everything that Yahweh wants to accomplish. And so, so these certainly raise a lot of questions, like how, how do these things fit into our modern progressive culture, right? Some of them seem archaic, but this command we're looking at today to honor your father and your mother is one that if we really look at it correctly, we can totally see as wisdom from God. And as we'll come to see this, there's this amazing grace in this command. So now here's what's so interesting about this. When, when you look back over the first four commandments, right, the, the deal, they, they deal with, with who God is, right, how he wants his people to, to be free, to, to worship him, and to express to him their gratitude and their thanks and their love for him, to represent him, right, and, and to find their rest and identity in him. They are all very like God-centered, and, and they answer this question of how does God want his image bearers to interact with him, and then as we turn this corner to these last commandments, it becomes clear that God was concerned how they would relate to each other as this newly formed people, right? How are they going to relate to each other, and then how are they going to relate to their neighbors? Because if you go all the way back to the promise of the blessing to Abraham, it's that he would form a people that would have a place that he would bless, and they in turn would bless the nations around them. So simply said, how do we relate to God? How do we relate to each other? That's what these 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments are really about. And this command, what we're looking at today, somehow, as we're going to see, it actually somehow has to do with both, how we relate to God and then how we relate to others. It's, it's this transitional command that informs us, but then begins to transform how we view every relationship with God and with others. And as we'll see, honoring parents is really the most logical, like jumping off point for directing our lives towards other image bearers, right? The others who we most commonly refer to as neighbor. So the location of this commandment, like where it sits in the rest of the commandments and, and how it acts as like this bridge between the two tables, it's incredibly significant. In both places that you find the Ten Commandments listed out, um, Moses writes these out in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, this command immediately, both times, follows the commands in how we relate to God. So we are meant to look both backwards at the first four commands, at this one, and then forwards. That's what this command does. It, it causes us to look back, how do we relate to God, and then it causes and it sets the pattern in how we are to relate to others. And, and, and that should open up our brains, right, like a little bit, to understand that everything that follows is some way, it still has to do with how we relate to God. So the first century theologian Philo wrote this. Um, he gives the fifth commandment on the honor due to parents. This commandment he placed on the borderline, right, so this is, the location is incredibly important, between the two sets of five. It is the last of the first set in which the most sacred injunctions are given, and it adjoins the second set, which contains the duties of man to man. So the reason I consider this is this. 
we see that parents, by their nature, and this is the important piece, stand on the borderline between the mortal and the immortal side of existence. How? Why? Right? Well, the mortal, because of their kinship with men and other animals through the perishableness of their bodies, everything living dies. The immortal, because the act of generation, the act of creation, right, assimilates them to God, the generator of all. So as we procreate, it actually attaches us to creator God. We're doing, we're co-creating with creator God. Does that make sense? So when we think about how Jesus summed up the law, right, what does he say? He's like, hey, out of these 615 commands, there's probably more. We're just looking at 10. Jesus says this. Of course, he says, well, you love God and you love others. You have your love for God and you have your love for neighbor. And what we're supposed to understand is before we even have the conversation about loving our neighbors, before we even can go there, we have to have this conversation about what it means to honor parents because they are the closest thing that God has given us to God in human form. They're not God, nor should they be, but we are to interact in some ways because they're co-creators with God. So let's look at how both of these look against each other, Exodus and Deuteronomy. So in Exodus, it says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then in, in Deuteronomy, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So we need to first mark that this is a command that has a promise attached to that. We'll deal with that in a little bit. But one of the most interesting things to note in, in really in both of those passages, right, is that Moses, and this is, this is important, like we want to point this out, because in the culture that this was written into, this would have been incredibly uncommon, right? Moses doesn't go with like just generic terms. He doesn't just say, honor your parents. Why not? That would have been quicker. Um, you could have had less words there. Nor does he do this. He doesn't leave out the, the wife or the mother, right? So in doing so, he's elevating women and mothers in a culture where their status was subhuman, right? To an equal partner as a parent worthy of dignity, right? So, 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 there, so God here in this is actually elevating motherhood and parenthood alongside fatherhood in a culture that was patriarchal and that would only honor fathers, which of course to us, like, may not seem that significant, or it still might even seem a little backward for our culture, but to most of the ancient world that this was written into, women, specifically mothers, would not have been afforded that dignity or honor. Because in a strictly, again, patriarchal culture, only your father was to be honored. That's how lineage was passed down, inheritance was passed down. So embedded in this command is this incredibly countercultural message to declare in this command that both men and women are of equal value, dignity, and worth in the eyes of Yahweh against a culture of Egypt that says the exact opposite. He's setting a new course for a new people where they could begin to reimagine what life would be like. Like, what is, what is this new life that Yahweh has? Does he, did he save us just to duplicate everything in Egypt, or does he have something different for us, right? They're no longer under the thumb of oppression and bondage, where a person's value and worth was only defined by their productivity. Um, now, their value and worth is defined by the loving and faithful God who created them. So it is meant to give them a, a, a course to plot ahead as they form this new covenant community, one where the culture of empire of self and sin no longer defines flourishing and life. 
but the kingdom of love and peace led by Yahweh. This would make them a distinct people from their neighbors, a community where every human is seen as precious and valuable because they bear the image of God. So all of that, that's a lot, right? Like that's a lot. That's a lot for them as a people who, who, who still have this deep thing calling them back and God's calling them forward. Like the tension here would be palpable because we all know, right, that while our relationship to our parents, our family of origin is significant, right? That, that doesn't always mean that it's healthy or good or loving or kind, right? There, there's really no other force that is more power to shape our identity, our values, our beliefs, our choices, and often really the course of our lives than our family of origin and our parents. And sometimes that means for better, but unfortunately all too often it means for worse, right? And I want to acknowledge before we move ahead, because I know, because I've sat with so many of you and listened to your stories, I know that for so many of you, your family of origin only means pain and hurt, right? But for better or for worse, as we kind of wrestle through this, it is not by accident that God, that his design was that our parents and our family are his plan for human flourishing, and it's our first contact with how we would experience God. It's weird, right? So my first contact with how I experience God are Dale and Gail Goodman, right? That's my parents, if you didn't know that. And yes, their names rhyme. Pretty cool, right? Like, what did it take to find two people whose names rhyme to come together so that I'm standing here in front of you now, right? But just think about it. Like, that's, it's so formative for us, right? So, all these relationships, right, to the key of them as we move forward through the relationships to neighbor, starting with parents, the key word to those relationships is this. It's the word honor. So in the Hebrew, the word translated comes from the word kaved. Its most literal translation is to give weight to or to make something weighty. So you're supposed to, when something is kaved, it, it's significant. It has a has a, has a gravity to it. It has a weight to it, right? Like, do you, you, like sometimes you know people that you would just go like, man, they have a kaved. They have a weight to them. They have like a gravitas to them, right? So, um, so, so dishonoring means this. It means that you're not taking whatever it is you're dishonoring. You're not taking it serious, right? You're, you're taking that thing or that person too lightly. You're not acknowledging that that thing has a weight or a significance to it. So to honor something is to acknowledge the thing that you're honoring, the person that you're honoring is kaved, right? They have a weight to them. Now, what would have made all of this so much infinitely easier is if Moses would have said, hey, gang, listen, what Yahweh really meant is to honor your parents only if they're honorable, right? Like how many of you does that sound so much easier and better for? Yeah, like if my parents would have acted honorably, it would have been so much easier for me to honor them, right? That might create an impetus for me to honor them. But that's not what he says. We honor them because of who they are and how they partner with God to be co-creators of our lives. And because of that, kaved or honor forms the foundation of that relationship. And so as we wrestle with the question, how do we live this out? How do we be faithful to this command? Instead of giving you like a, a, a random like laundry list of ideas, 
like write cards and do these things. That's not really the point, right, of today. The first thing that we have to just kind of gut out of us today is like, can I honor my parents? Have I honored my parents? What does that look like, right? So I'm not going to tell you the things to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to give you some questions to wrestle with. Now, you're going to want to write these down. So Jason's going to leave these questions up here. I'll read through them real quick. But I want you to wrestle through this this week, right? Because it's, it's less important in like to me today in like what that, what that looks like, right? Like write a letter, do these things. You have to wrestle with the implications first of like, can I even do this? Is this something I'm doing? So, so the first one is this, where does the command to honor father and mother seem most difficult to me? You begin to answer these honestly, I think you'll be able to see like, oh, here's how I begin to honor my parents. Like, what does my resistance to honoring my parents say about my honor for God? How can trusting in Jesus free me to receive God's love and acceptance and honor my parents? And would my parents say that they feel honored by me? Would my children say that I am living honorably? What can I do to become more honoring or honorable? First thing is this. First thing is the most easy, is you have to track backwards. Remember that we said that this command causes us to look backwards. So you gotta go all the way back to number one and just go like, hey, can I answer, like, can I answer that one first? Like, is there anything before or between Yahweh and me? Am I worshiping something differently than I'm worshiping Yahweh? If so, man, it's going to be real tricky to get to your parents, right? Am, am I worshiping Yahweh in the way that Yahweh requires me to worship him, right? Am I carrying Yahweh's name into places and spaces? And am I bearing the name of Yahweh in a way that's honoring to him and is invitational to the people that hear his name? Am I finding my identity in him? You got to answer all of those questions before you even get to these. I, I would say this, I, in the flow of this, if you can't answer yes to those questions, then you're going to have a real tar, hard and difficult time understanding honoring your parents. So honor Yahweh first. Give kaved first to Yahweh because he is weighty and significant. Now, it's important for us to pause, right, and go back to the text and realize that this is the only command that has a promise attached to it. But I think it's important that we interact with this command and its attached promises, not as some type of like karmic like reward system, like you do this and then these things go well for you, which isn't actually really what karma is in the first place. Um, that's American karma. But like you do this, so I'll do this. That's not what's happening here. Rather, we should see this, right? We should see this as God's living word, his prophetic word to his people, and not just to ethnic Israel that's encamped at the base of this mountain, but to all image bearers. It's an invitation to see God's good design. This is how he created humans to experience life in his creation. And that's why when you jump over to the New Testament, and when you get to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, it's in chapter six here, keep in mind that he's writing this, and he has in view these commandments. And he says this, he writes in verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father, father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that may, you may live long in the land. So he just quotes that. So in Paul's mind, as he's setting once again, a new course for a new people that are now being formed into the life of Israel, God's church, his people, right? He's saying, hey, we've got to get this right again. So, the, so you can see how, how Sinai stretches all the way into the New Testament because it was meant to. It was meant to give 
God's people this ethic and this value to live in and this culture to live out as his people. So listen, if your parents ever quoted like the inverse to you, anybody's parents ever quote the inverse of this? Like, like if you don't obey me, if you don't honor me, you're not going to be alive much longer. Anybody, anybody's parents going to threaten you with that? Like they may have meant it, but I'm pretty sure that's not what Paul or Moses or God means here. Like, we have to remember it's always to always keep it, like, where is this located in its immediate context? So when this was given and why it's given and where it's given, we have to keep all of that in mind. It's given to them before they've entered the land of promise, right? They haven't entered Canaan yet. So to prepare them, why? For a life of flourishing in the land of promise. And God's saying, hey, While this land was promised to be one of great opportunity and provision and refuge for you, one of of shalom, a place that they could be formed as Yahweh's people to be blessed and to bless others, but that reality needed to be cultivated, right? It wasn't going to simply be true of them the minute they were standing ten toes strong in the land. And a big piece of that is eradicating any traces of Egypt from them as a people. And there's a lot in there. There's a lot under the surface. Listen, like removing that from them is a lot because maybe on the surface, like it's just, oh, this is this gross. Like I don't even like, it's gross, right? Like it's like a little like pimple that you see. And I don't like watching those videos. I'm going to tell you my own personal experience with this. So I was 17 year old. I'm at Lebanon high school. And for some reason, I've maybe told some of this story before. I don't know why, but I'm taking this class and it's like going through like different medical experiences. I did a little turn with like the fire department, but I worked with a local physician over there whose brother may or may not be, and I don't know which one, Luke or Bo Duke, but um, he worked in Lebanon and I worked with him. I did a couple rounds with him. I'll never forget. He's like, hey, he's like, come into the little like, you know, operating room with me. There's like a sebaceous cyst that I'm going to excise. And I'm like, okay, cool. I don't know what that is. So I'm standing there, and it's just like this little thing on the pers- this person's shoulder, right? And then he, he cuts it, and then it wasn't this little thing. And then he, he I, don't, I didn't wash my hands. I don't think I had gloves on. It was Lebanon. It was the 80s. It's fine. He's like, why don't you hold these? What are the tools that you would, you would know that you hold? The, what's that? The retractors. He's like, hold the retractors. So you're like, here's this little thing on the surface. This is real gross, right? And then... It just, I mean, there was so much underneath the surface of that thing, and I didn't make it through. He looks over at me and is like, yeah, you need to stop holding those and go sit down. And I was like, yeah, that's real gross. But it's like that. It's like there's so, like on the surface, you might go like, oh, there's just Egypt. But you scratch that, and you go like, there's so much to extract for them. For generations, that's all they ever knew. And so this land of promise, it's going to take cultivation. It's going to take paying attention to your heart. So a a big piece of that is this, is eradicating those traces of Egypt, right? So, so So you can take the people out of Egypt and you have to take the Egypt out of the people because Egypt can't be a part of this new life in this new land. God is creating a new people with a new set of morals and ethics and values. He's giving them a new God himself to worship, giving them new ways to worship him. He's given them this new Sabbath, identity, and he's given them this mission to carry his name to the nations. And just straight up, like this is simple, like they're actually going to have to do a lot of physical work, right? You're going to catch this here in a moment, 
to build and maintain the infrastructure in this land of promise that was going to support them. They're going to have to build homes and schools and roads and farms, etc. right? They were going to have to physically build that. So imagine you're a part of this huge human caravan, right? And, and maybe you're part of ethnic Israel, but as we know, like not everybody was, and you fled Egypt, right? And you're standing at the face of this mountain and you're thinking like how are we going to like what is this land going to look like you realize oh we're going to have to do a lot of work to start a new country like the responsible like who you know how do we build that and you start thinking to yourself who are the most useful people in that caravan well the young and able-bodied right? Like, you've got a lot of physical work ahead of him. I mean, you've got to cut trees, and you've got to dig holes, you've got to pour foundations, and yes, you're going to have to make some more bricks. So then, who becomes, like, the least needed, the easiest to dismiss the mar- and marginalize? Those that aren't able to contribute physically to doing this work. So just strictly on a completely utilitarian level, who would that be? Like parents, like elderly, right? It would be easy for them to say that the, that the only truly necessary and valuable people moving ahead would be the young and the able-bodied. Like they're, they're reproducing Egypt because it's not out of them yet, right? So that message had, had been so deeply ingrained in them for generations as slaves in Egypt. Your only value is worth what you can produce. And God's tearing that out of them, right? So it would be so tempting for them to just say, like, we don't need any more dead weight. And God's saying, my image bearers are not dead weight. They are prized and valued possessions at every single stage of life. And that's where the promise comes in. And he's not saying, hey, for those of you that live this out as individuals, you're going to live a really long life. That's not what he's saying. He's addressing them as a community and as his covenant people. And he's saying, if you diminish or mitigate people made in my likeness because they no longer have this like physical ability to contribute because you believe that they serve no utility in your society, then you are bound to have a society that over time will implode and fall apart. It won't go well for you and it will not last long. God's saying, yeah, they may not be able to swing an ax or a shovel, their days of back-breaking work are long behind them, but your community still needs them to flourish. You need their wisdom and grace. And if you build a culture that honors parents, honors elders, that esteems them and values them, that listens to them instead of dismissing them, so in God's kingdom, there is no okay boomers, right? You don't even say that. You just see all people as God's valued possession. You will thrive as a people when you understand the value, the inherent value that people have because of the Imago Dei in them. And it will go well for you and you will live full and long lives now as a community. So, so much of this completely flies in the face of Western culture, right? Like we elevate and celebrate fierce individualism over community. We almost worship it, right? We, it, like, and we almost worship, if not at least, like, associate youthfulness with effectiveness and utility, and we dismiss the elderly. So, so this command confronts us because our culture, in some ways, treats parents and elders in the same way that Egypt would treat them. When, when you are no longer able to, to work, you're, you're no longer able to serve a pur- purpose, 
We have this misguided notion that our parents and elders are misinformed and uneducated instead of looking to them for wisdom and instruction and coveting them and honoring them because of that. We all too often dismiss them by sticking them in homes and ignoring them. But this command forces us to reevaluate our culture, to understand that as Jesus followers, our circles of compassion, because remember, we, we, we look back to how we honor God and worship God. We get to how we honor parents so that we can look forward to how we honor our neighbor, the other. And so that means this, that, that this command forces us to reevaluate the culture that we live in and to understand that as Jesus followers, our circles of compassion and care They're always expanding and extending outward and reaching out. More people should be coming into our circle of care and compassion and honoring, not less. That's the point of this. It gives us a a roadway ahead for how we value and love and see the other. Those that we love and honor as family members or neighbors that continues to grow and stretch, those that we are called to lay down our lives for, that extends to those that we are at odds with. Even those that are our enemies, we are called to serve and bring honor to as God's precious image bearers. So while the vision of honor starts with parents, it doesn't end there. God's saying, honor the other, honor your neighbor by not murdering them or committing adultery with them or stealing from them or lying about them and don't look at what they have and say, I want what they have so bad that I'd murder them for that, that I'd sleep with them for that or that I'd steal from them or lie about them to get it. Remember, God's building a kingdom here on earth for his people to live in and flourish and his people are from every tribe and tongue and nation and he's establishing a people that to live in that kingdom that would have a distinct set of ethics that informed and guided them, that they would have a king to serve and lead them, and a king that would, well, a king that despite having nothing but enmity between himself and his creation, he would love and serve them and honor them by laying his life down for them. That's our Yahweh that we worship. And we get the privilege to look to not only our parents, but starting there, and then those expanding circles of people that God calls us to care for. We follow Jesus into that by loving our enemies, by honoring them, by praying for them, by serving them, because we have a good king that did no less for us. So let me pray and let's respond. Father, we thank you.